on tape delay from the Barsoomian Blade Bureau in Chicago, Illinois. Dateline Jassoon. For fans of Edgar Rice Burroughs and Pulp Adventure. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. This is Elmo of Dateline Jassoom with fantastic news for everyone who has been waiting for the movie John Carter of Mars. I am connected via Gridley Wave to Mars where I'm talking with Barsoomian Blade reporter Herbo Gooley. Now Herbo is at the foot of a landing tower in Greater Helium waiting for the arrival of the giant warship Paramount. There are a number of important persons is on board. Yes, that's what I've been told, Herbo. My understanding is that all the head honchos at Paramount Pictures have arrived on Mars and are coming to Greater Helium on this giant warship, which has been renamed in honor of their studio. Uh, while you're waiting there, why don't you tell me a little bit about what's going on on the ground there? It's a great mass of humanity assembled here in the field. A thousand people have come out to witness the landing of this great airship. It sounds like it must be quite a sight. Well, all these bigwigs coming in to make a decision whether or not to greenlight John Carter of Mars, and and they'll be having their high-powered talks with the warlord and and the Jeddak, I'm sure, about uh, uh, what that movie will involve. Uh, Tell us about the, the little guys on the ground there helping to to steer this warship in, into port. The landing crew of the air base here is expertly trained to handle these massive ships of the sky. Each man is assigned a particular post, and when the word is shouted that the ship is coming in, this man knows just exactly what is expected of him. Can you see anything in the sky yet, Herbo? The ship is riding majestically toward us like some great feather, riding as though it was mightily, mighty proud of the place it's playing in the world's aviation. The ship is no doubt bustling with activities we can see. Orders are shouted to the crew. The passengers are probably lining the windows looking down at the field ahead of them, getting their glimpse of the mooring mass. It must be quite a sight, and it just makes me want to see this movie that these executives are hopefully going to greenlight even more, because then here on Jassoom, Herbo, we'll be able to see these sights and, and everything that you're seeing firsthand, we'll be able to see it up on the movie screen. The back motors of the ship are just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... It bursts into flame. It bursts into flame and it's falling. It's crashing. Watch it. Watch it. Watch it. Get out of the way. Get out of the way. Get it started. Get it started. It's flying and it's crashing. It's crashing terrible. Oh, my. Get out of the way, please. It's burning, bursting into flames, and, and it's falling on the morning fast, and all the folks between that this is terrible. This is the one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's, 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 it's place is 20, oh, four or 500 feet into the sky. It, it, it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now, and the frame is crashing to the ground, not quite to the mooring mass. Oh, the humanity and all the fans are just screaming around here. I don't do it. <laughs> I can't even talk to people. His friends are on there. It's, 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 uh, oh. I, I can't talk, ladies and gentlemen. 
honest, it's just like they're a massive smoking wreckage. <laughs> and everybody can hardly breathe and talk and scream. Lady, I, I, I'm sorry. Hmm. Well, it appears John Carter of Mars has suffered yet another setback. Most Burroughs fans probably already know this, but John Favreau, the latest director trying to bring John Carter of Mars to the big screen, recently posted a message on his MySpace website that says, quote, Unfortunately, due to the 2008 Paramount production of Star Trek, it looks like Carter is not going to happen in the near future. I assure you that the script and artwork were very well received, but they've got a lot of similar stuff in the pipeline at the studio. I am trying to help position the film to get made and remain committed to seeing it through. That said, it's not going to happen this year. Sorry for the disappointment. Believe me, after spending six months trying to make this my next film, I too am disappointed. End quote. Well, John, uh, I for one appreciate the effort, but uh, you've been trying for six months to get this film made. I and a lot of other Burroughs fans have been waiting for decades to see this film get made, and so I'm not sure whose disappointment is greater. Um, And as a Star Trek fan as well, I'm really torn by this because I'm, yeah, I'm kind of looking forward to seeing the next Star Trek movie. I'm Captain James Kirk. This is the Starship Enterprise. Uh, but if I had a choice, I would a thousand times over take John Carter. Um, I know some people have, uh, suggested that, uh, any attempt to make John Carter would be, uh, would probably disappoint the fans, but I am certainly not one of them. I want to see this movie made. Even in in the worst of the Tarzan movies, I can usually find some little bit that I enjoy and and like on its own merits. And just the amount of effort that has gone into John Carter makes me think that I I would have found many moments in in this movie to enjoy and revel in and uh if you can't tell i am very disappointed in uh in these latest developments but i'm not going to give up uh hope uh john carter says i still live and i think uh fans should uh take that to heart and, and consider this project as being still alive just delayed It's been delayed so many times, that's something we're used to. On May 3rd in Oak Park, Illinois, I attended a panel discussion about Edgar Rice Burroughs and Ray Bradbury. Three of the participants were members of the Burroughs Bibliophiles, and this week 
we bring you Greg Phillips. Welcome. Welcome, everyone, here this evening. Um, my name is Frank Lipo. I'm the executive director of the Historical Society of Oak Park and River Forest. And we're, we're happy to welcome you this evening into Pleasant Home um, for this uh, discussion about the work of Edgar Rice Burroughs and Ray Bradbury. In some ways, Greg Phillips' um, introduction is the simplest. Um, he's an artist. And I think I, the first time I called him back after he left a message about something here, um, he's listed right in the phone book as comma artist, which people don't do that much these days. You know, it's the old idea of a city director with their job title. And he's been involved in numerous projects of his own and also been a volunteer and I know in the past with the Children's Museum, with the Historical Society, other organizations. So he's been very generous with his time and his talent. He also has a show coming up opening May 19th on Harrison Street at the Art House in Oak Park um, at 43 uh, Harrison Street in, in, in uh, Oak Park on, on opening up on Friday, May 19th. And he is, um, he's, the gentleman with the glasses right here. That's Greg Phillips. Um, I'm going to talk about Mars as handled by both men. Uh, both Bradbury and Burroughs were, of course, Illinois boys. Uh, Bradbury was born in Waukegan, and Burroughs was born in Chicago and lived in Oak Park for a while. Uh, when Bradbury was born in Waukegan in 1920, Edgar Rice Burroughs had just moved out of Oak Park the year before. But he would soon become one of Bradbury's childhood heroes and later literary influences. Both men wrote classic stories about Mars. Uh, many other lesser authors wrote imitations of Burroughs' stories, but Bradbury took the love of Mars he gained from Burroughs and came up with his own planet. Burroughs wrote his first Mars novel in 1911. In fact, it was his first novel ever. He had read some science fiction in the pulp magazines of the time and decided he could do at least as well. Uh, this was, by the way, after he had lived in Oak Park for a year, but had moved back to Chicago. This was only 14 years after H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, uh, and it was a time when Percival Lowell's view of Mars covered with canals was very popular. But Burroughs imagined a world very different from anything before, a world that, like Tolkien's Middle Earth, is a dangerous place to live, but a lot of fun to read about. His first book, The Princess of Mars, was the first of a series of 11 Mars novels he wrote between 1911 and 1948. And it's one of the most detailed, sustained, complex, and fascinating works of imagination ever written. Uh, Mars is called Barsoom by its inhabitants. It's an old, dying world with dried up seas and ruins of ancient cities, but also with a thriving population of several different races of people and plenty of dangerous animals. The first race we meet are the green Martians, and they are not at all human. They're 12 to 15 feet tall, with four arms and huge tusks, and they're a savage race of nomads that build no cities of their own, but use the ancient ruins that they find. John Carter learns to live among them, and they tolerate him because of the physical feats he can do in Mars' light gravity. Several months pass before John Carter learns that they are not the only type of Martians. The green men capture a red Martian woman who is not only human but extremely beautiful. This is Deja Thoris, a princess and John Carter's future love interest. The red Martians are completely human except that they lay eggs and live for a thousand years. <laughs> they have their own cities all over the planet and, and though their civilization is higher than that of the green men, they're also usually at war with somebody. 
We later learned that there are also black, yellow, and white Martians in different parts of the planet. The science is pretty whimsical, even for 1911. The Martians use guns with radium bullets, uh, and there are two colors unknown to Earth, and one of them, the eighth Barsoomian ray, can somehow be contained in tanks and, like helium, be used to buoy up their flying machines. Speaking of helium, that's the name of the Red Martian's capital city. Radium and helium were trendy new elements back then. <coughs> but the weapon of choice is the sword. Every well-equipped Martian wears a long sword, a short sword, a dagger, and a radium pistol, and not much else. There's plenty of fencing in these stories, and a big part of the appeal for a boy like Bradbury would have been that everybody, men and women, goes around naked and loaded with weapons. <laughs> Bradbury talks of raising his arms to Mars and longing to be there. This is exactly how John Carter got there, some sort of astral projection that at first he cannot control, but eventually learns to, and in one book he even come back, comes back to Earth to talk with Burroughs, who has been faithfully writing down his adventures. Later, another Earth man, was it, what was his name? Ulysses Paxton, Ulysses also Paxton. from the Civil War, is taken to Mars in the same way. Uh, in the 1930s, Burroughs actually did write a book in which someone else, Carson Napier, tries to get to Mars in a regular rocket ship, but he goes astray and lands on Venus instead and starts his own whole series of novels. Bradbury had written several stories about Mars in the 1940s, and in 1950, the year Burroughs died, he combined them with new material into a book called The Martian Chronicles. Right away, we see a few similarities the ancient world with dried up oceans and ruined cities alongside a modern civilization, very alien and beautiful. But in this book, the Earth people don't blend into the Martian way of life. Everything goes very badly. They come in 1950s style rockets, and the first three expeditions are killed by the Martians, who are the delicate humanoids with brown skin and golden eyes and telepathic abilities. When the fourth expedition arrives, though, they find almost all the Martians are dead from earthly diseases, chicken pox to be precise. With the planet all to themselves, more and more people come from Earth and build tacky Earth towns and trash what's left of Mars. And when nuclear war breaks out on Earth, almost everyone goes home and they end up having ruined two planets. The book is not so much a novel as a series of related short stories and social commentary is the tone instead of swashbuckling adventure. One chapter surprised me with the N-word in this, uh, in this story, all the black people are leaving for Mars, and we see the reactions of a few white southern bigots who don't want them to leave, mainly who are they going to lynch for fun anymore. Uh, Bradbury, writing in 1950, uh, supposed that in his year of 2003, no progress had been made in race relations. Another chapter points directly to Fahrenheit 451, which he wrote in 1953. The censorship of books and films has increased until in 1975, all books are burned and an authority is set up to police the world for any sign of culture. The only films allowed are of Ernest Hemingway stories. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what, what Bradbury thought of Hemingway. <laughs> um, and our hero in this story is a rich man whose 15,000 volume library had been burned. He builds a replica of Edgar Allan Poe's House of Usher on Mars. Um, the authorities to come to shut him down and destroy the house are all done away with in various Poe-like deaths, which because they haven't read Poe, they don't see coming. <laughs> yeah. 
In the final chapter of, of Bradbury's book, there's only one family left on Mars, and they become the new Martians. Uh, one of Bradbury's intentions in this book was to do a reversal on H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds and have the Earthmen be the invaders. Um, I looked at several other stories that Bradbury had written about Mars that aren't included in the Martian Chronicles, and most of them directly relate to some chapter in the book. Um, there were at least a dozen attempts to get a Martian Chronicles movie made, including one in the 1960s with Gregory Peck, and Bradbury wrote more than a few screenplays for these. But finally, in 1980, it was made as a six-hour miniseries on NBC, and Bradbury was not too happy with the result, just as he wasn't happy with the Fahrenheit 451 movie. Burroughs has never fared well in the movies either. I'm sure you've also seen, all seen many Tarzan movies, but frankly, hardly any of them convey the, the feel of the Burroughs novels. And as for John Carter of Mars, many, many projects have been started, but not one of them has been made it to production. A year ago, we thought it was going to happen, but we're still waiting for a Princess of Mars movie. If they ever make one, I'd like to be sitting next to Ray Bradbury at the premiere. So would I, Greg. Thanks for a very good talk on Burroughs. In future episodes of Dateline Jassoom, we will be uh, bringing you other panelists, J. the V. Joan Bloodegg, and... Ah! Umgawa. <laughs> you see, I, I have sung opera. <laughs> George McWhorter. That's it for show number seven. I will see you back here on May 21st for show number eight, when I'm hoping to have a report from the Jeddak of the North about the Disney production of Tarzan on Broadway, and uh, hopefully, if everything goes according to plan, I'll be able to report to you from Minneapolis, Minnesota, about the stage play of A Princess of Mars. If we can't get a movie, let's uh, see what the stage play is like. I will talk to you then. This is Elmo from the Barsoomian Blade Bureau in Chicago, signing off. This is 2019, Elmo. And if you want to reach me today, you can send me an email at my new address, jefflong0220 at gmail.com. You can also leave a voicemail at the new hosting site for Dateline Jassoo. That's at anchor.fm slash panthen hyphen press. And when you go to that website, you'll see a little button for send a voice message. So I'd like to hear from you. Or, you know, just friend me on Facebook. I'm on all the Burroughs groups.